Open your Bibles to Jonah. All right. We got two more sermons left in the book of Jonah. We are going to be parked in chapter four. Here's what I want to do. I want to catch you guys up real quickly on this sermon series we've been on. Book of Jonah is about our sin, God's grace, and God's mission. By the way, the book of Jonah and the major themes in this book is essentially what the entire Bible is about. Our sin, God's grace, and God's mission. And, and, and that's going to become even clearer as we finish this book. Um, I just want to catch up here. Here's, here's where we are. Chapter 1, God comes to Jonah, a prophet in Israel, and says, Jonah, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh, the hated enemy, wicked, evil, violent city of Nineveh. And I want you to preach to them, to have them turn from their wicked ways. Jonah says, I don't think so. And he gets on a ship and goes to Tarshish, 2,500 miles away in the opposite direction. And God intervenes in grace. God intervenes in grace, sends a storm to intercept his self-destructive behavior. Jonah begins to be awakened to his rebellion. And on the ship, he says to sailors, throw me in. The sailors throw him in. Where God sends a great fish to swallow him up. And Jonah spends three days and three nights already foreshadowing the work of Christ, right? In the belly of the fish. Chapter 2, Jonah's prayer, his psalm in the belly of the fish. And we see Jonah beginning to understand the nature of sin and beginning to understand the nature of grace, okay? And Jonah chapter 2 ends with Jonah, Jonah's kind of prophetic declaration that indeed salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah chapter 3. Jonah is spit up onto the shores of Nineveh. He walks out into the city, preaches a five-word in Hebrew, sermon and the entire violent wicked city repents in terms amazing work of god and then we come to jonah chapter four and here's what we read but jonah was greatly displeased and became angry he prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But Jonah replied, the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade, and waited to see what would happen to this. Isn't that just an amazing saying? The entire city results, erupts in revival. And Jonah says, this is disgusting to me. And he goes out of the city and sits and pouts like a little child. By the way, if you're not a Christian... You're going to love the next two sermons because a lot of what you had thought about what Christians are like, you may sit there going, I knew it. That's exactly what they're like. That's why I don't want to be a. And the contrast in chapter four is between God's love and Jonah's love. And Jonah's lack of love is meant to give clarity to the amazing love of God. So you need to be here. Okay. Then the Lord God provided a vine made a grove for Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. It got up to 115 degrees. Dry heat. 
And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, you have any right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. That's a Hebrew idiom we'll get to. And many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And the book ends with the question. And I said this last week, the reason why the book ends with the question is because the question is being asked to who? You and me. It's like a spear is being hurled at Jonah with the question. And Jonah gets out of the way, and there you and I are. And the question, the spear, is God going, what are you concerned about today? The question is, and that's in other words, what do you love the most. The question is, God's looking at you and I'm going, you don't understand my love? I don't understand your love. Jonah, you care more about plants than you do about people. A spear is being hurled at you and me today, and we are asked the question, what keeps us awake at night? What concerns us so much, and the Hebrew word concern, literally, it's very weak in English. The Hebrew word concern is literally to grieve or to mourn over. And God's question to Jonah saying, wait a minute, what concerns you again? I don't know about you, but that stings because I've got massive like conviction right now. Because in God's economy, God says, people, people, people. People matter the most. In our economy, things, 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 things matter the most. This is embarrassing for me as I thought about what concerns me. You know what concerns me? This is why I could say it. What concerns me is what a 20-year-old does with the basketball. That's what concerns me. Because if that doesn't turn out the way I want it to, I'm like depressed for a whole week. You know what concerns me? What concerns me is if I'm going to go out to the suburbs, is there going to be traffic? Because I hate traffic. I'm serious. Come on. What concerns you? God is hurling the spear at you and I going, wake up. He's saying, do you know how much people matter to me? I know for you, God's saying, projects, programs, things, cars, money, success, relationships, things matter to you. But God's going, you need to know how much people, dying people, hungry people, lost people, young girls, sold into slavery, people matter. My heart is burdened and mourned over people. And God's going, what about you? Spear. Jonah gets out of the way. I love this quote somewhere. I got, in God's city, the inhabitants love people and walk on gold. 
in Man City. <laughs> the people love gold and walk on people. It, doesn't that describe our world today? Who will tell them that because of Jesus, things are different? By the way, this is all like next week's sermon, okay? This is all like preview to next week. So if you want massive conviction, you come back. If you want to be very comfortable, don't come back. Can I just ask you one more question before? When was the last time you wept because of a friend or a neighbor or a family member who doesn't know Jesus? When was the last time you wept? Because there are millions of people in destitute poverty. A lot of it because of our neglect and our irresponsibility. (laughs) Some of you are going, man, I didn't come to church for this. I want a little pick-me-up, you know what I mean? Like, make me feel better. I will, but it's like, it's like medicine. You got you to gotta take it real, you know, first, and then you'll feel better. One more. God's saying, your love grows inward. You are consumed, self-absorbed about your issues, your concerns, your problems. God says, my love constantly is growing outward. People. 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 I don't know. Are you like me? Anybody else struggle with this? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, yeah. We mourn God. Change our hearts. You know what spiritual maturity is? When we're concerned about the things that concern God's heart. You know what spiritual maturity is? It's when things that break God's heart break ours. You know what spiritual maturity is? When we begin to live out Matthew 7, seek first the kingdom, his agenda. Spiritual maturity. All righty. Well, let's do part one of chapter four, okay? Go back to verse one. Here we go. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. By the way, in Hebrew, it literally says it was evil to Jonah with a great evil. In other words, Jonah's not just annoyed. He is frustrated. He is offended. He is troubled. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sanding calamity. Any, any self-respecting Jew knew exactly where that passage came from, that verse. Where does it come from? Does anybody know? Exodus chapter 34. Let me tell you the background, Exodus chapter 34. Okay? The people of God have just been delivered from Israel of slavery and oppression. Moses says, I'm going to go up to Mount Sinai and commune with God. While they go up, the Israelites get frustrated awaiting. So they decided to build a golden calf and worship it. Moses comes down and says, what's going on? God says, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Moses decides to plead for the nation of Israel on their behalf. And God amazingly relents. And Moses has the audacity then to say, God, show me your glory. By the way, that's a very dangerous prayer, but a really, really good prayer. God, show me your glory. And God says, I can't. Because if you see my face, you're going to what? You're going to die. So I'm going to let all my goodness. By the way, it's kind of funny scripture. All my goodness was God's hindsight, you know. God says, I'm going to let all my goodness pass before you. Because you can't see my face and live, right? I'm going to let all my goodness pass before you. And I'm going to declare my name. Now check this out. But before God does that, check this out. Before God does that, God says this to Moses. 
Exodus 33, 19. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Huh. You know what God just did to uh, Nineveh? Moses then says, God, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I'm going to put you the crevice of the rock and watch. And as God passes by, this is what God says, which is what Jonah says in verse 2, verse, Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jonah knows this by memory. And he doesn't like what it says. And all of a sudden, in the book of Jonah, we come to a startling aspect that we now come to realize. It's not so much that Jonah can't stand Nineveh. Jonah can't stand who? God. God reveals himself as he is, and Jonah says, I don't like you. Jonah runs from his enemies. God throws himself and runs toward his enemies. Jonah says, I don't like you. God has hair trigger, not wrath and anger, hair trigger, compassion. Just like that? Just like that. And Jonah says, I don't like you. God extends grace to the undeserving. Jonah says, I don't like that. God is promiscuous with his love. And Jonah says, that offends me. Here's what Jonah's doing. Here's what you and I do. Listen, listen. Small point, we're going to move on. Jonah, instead of taking God as he is, wants to remake God in his image. That's what you and I do. We see God, and we say, God, I don't like the way you really are, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remake you in my image so it's more tolerable for me. Anybody done that? Uh, Just three people? Okay. Here's the problem of remaking God in your image, and I've said this numerous times, so I'm going to a little bit hit on it and move on. The problem when you remake God in your image of your creation, a God of your creation will never change you because he's a product of your creation. A God who is a product of your heart will never change your heart because he's a product of your heart. 1 John chapter 3 verse 9 says, whenever our hearts condemn us, that is whenever your hearts hear those voices, you're worthless. How can you call yourself a Christian? You did that again. God can never forgive you. When those condemning thoughts come to our hearts, how do we overcome them? The Bible says God is greater than our hearts. If your heart made up this God who you feel very comfortable with because there's some offensive things about God that you don't like, how is that God who is a product of your heart change your heart? I've said this before. I put it up on the screen. The deepest need of your heart is a God who is not the product of the deepest need of your heart. You need a God. I need a God who is not a figment of our imagination who we want him to be. We need a God who can come and tell us things. That we don't want to be true because that's the only way our hearts will be changed when he comes and tells us things that are too good to be true. 
Unless we have a God who can come and say, you are spiritually bankrupt. You're in debt before God. You need a savior. I can't save myself. No. You are terrible at managing your life. You need a Lord. I want to be Lord. You need a Lord. Unless you have a God who could tell you those things, you'll never be changed. When the good news comes and says, he loves you so much that he sent his son to die on your behalf. And faith in him, faith in him and trust in him, God accepts you unconditionally. Is that good news? It's tremendous news. The deepest need of our hearts is not a God that we, and where do you find him? You find him in the Bible. How many of you have ever experienced recently? Are you reading the Bible? You go, I don't like that. That offends me. Anybody? Yeah. You're on the right track. <laughs> there are things in the Bible I still struggle with, and it takes weeks and months, years for sometimes me to go, oh, I don't like that about you. I'm done. God says, out. Go, 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 go. Do your thing. And I come back. Here's the difference, you guys. Ready? There's a difference between you reading the Bible and when the Bible starts reading you. And you start going, oh, 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 oh. Route to transformation. Route to transformation. But here's the irony of ironies, okay? The context in which God declares his character of merciful, gracious, slow to anger, bounding in love, steadfast love. The context in which God declares character is what? The context is in which, listen, listen, the context where God says this is who I am is a context in which there's a group of people that deserve to be wiped out. But God doesn't. Are you tracking with me so far? The context in which God declares who he is is a context in which the nation of Israel committing adultery and God says, you deserve to be wiped out, but I'm going to relent and extend grace. What's God asking Jonah to do? Go and preach to who? A group of people who deserve to be wiped out. And yet God relents. Jonah is being asked to do the very same thing that God did to the nation of Israel. Jonah is being asked to do the same thing in declaring God's character that God did to the nation of Israel. And Jonah says, no. And we share this way early on. Jonah's not afraid of failure. He's afraid of what? Success. He doesn't want God to send grace to them. He doesn't want God to deliver them. God, he wants God to wipe them out. Why? Jonah, in his heart of hearts, self-righteousness, heart of hearts says, they don't deserve it. Why does it say they don't deserve it? Very important. He sees their sin. He doesn't see his sins. He sees their wickedness. And their wickedness are obvious. Sexual morality, violence, evil, statue idolatry. He doesn't see his sin. Now, listen, this is very important, very important. Because he sees their sin, but he doesn't see his sin, Jonah's angry. He's angry, angry enough to die. Why? Why? Listen. He's angry that the city of Nineveh is not getting what he thinks they deserve, which is judgment. But he's also angry because he's not getting what he thinks he deserves. Jonah is the older brother, Luke 15. I obeyed you. I've been good. I'm following your orders. I demand a certain... Whoa, 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 whoa. I went to Nineveh. Now I expect you to have my life turn out the way I wanted to, God. And whoa, 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 whoa. Forgiveness? 
compassion? Oh no, that's not part of my plan for myself and the world. I've been good. I've been obedient. By expectation for my goodness, you nuke them. You nuke those godless. mm. You nuke those evil pagans. That's my plan. Wait a minute, God. What's the plan of obedience? Wait a minute. If the point of obedience is not so that I can put you in debt, so that I could have you, you know, have my life turn out the way I want it to, answer my prayers, and do the things that I expect you to, what's the point of obedience? What's the point of being good? Can I ask you something? Why are you obeying? Why am I obeying? Why are we being good? Why are you being good? Why are you obeying? Seriously. Are you obeying? Are you following orders? Are you being compliant so that you can put God in your debt and say, God, I expect you to turn my life the way I want it to. I expect you to answer my prayers. I expect you to serve my needs. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't like what you're, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't like the way my life is turning out. Why am I obeying then? Why am I surrendering myself? Or is your obedience one of, at an infinite cost to himself, he freely and graciously extends grace to me. A God like that, how could I not? To one who has emptied the treasury of heaven, given himself of all, how could I not give myself of everything? What's your obedience motivation? Gospel grace? Religious self-righteousness. Here's the thing, though. Two people in a new community, they look exactly the same on the outside. You know, you avoid the big sins. You're very compliant. You come to church. You go to small group Bible study. On the outside, two people very similar. But internally, why they are the way they are could not be more different. One person, I'm doing it to put God in debt. The other person, he has paid my debt at an infinite cost to himself. Which one are you? Why are you obedient? I'm serious. Why are you a good person? Why do you obey? Jonah, I'm angry. Why? Not just because they don't deserve it. I deserve it. Wipe them out. them. God says, oh, 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 I see where this is going. Verse 3. <laughs> now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Why does he respond the way he does? A couple of things, possibly. One, again, he doesn't think they deserve it. After all, hey, aren't there some sins that God just can't forgive? Aren't there some limit, Jonah's thinking? There's got to be a limit to how much he forgive. Isn't there some verse in the New Testament about how if you, like, deny the Holy Spirit, that's like the unforgivable sin? That's a whole sermon in and of itself, okay? We'll come back to some other time. But one reason God, Jonah's going, you know what, isn't there a limit? Secondly, reason, second reason, listen, listen, and this is historically something that was important. Remember, Assyria was a threat to the national security of Israel. Right? So the national security of Israel, he's going, you know what? If Nineveh is nuked and wiped out, we could, can you imagine? I'm just picturing this. Can you imagine what happened when Jonah finally went back home? First of all, he's probably like bleached like white because of the acid inside the fish, right? He's walking. His family's like, whoa, Jonah! This is Jonah chapter 5, by the way. Where? Oh my gosh, what the, what, what, where have you been? Nineveh. Wait, Nineveh, like Assyria, Nineveh, Nineveh? Yeah, you lying, man, because you're still alive. How'd you come back alive? Well, God, what, what happened? God called me to go preach 
Repentance and grace. He did what? <laughs> you didn't go, right? You didn't go, right? You stayed. No, I went. You, you went? What, what happened? I preached. And then what? They all turned to the God. What, 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 what? They, they all turned to the living God. What? They, they all turned to the living God and they, God, God. No, don't say it. God did what? God, God spared him. How are we going to sleep at night? How's my wife? You see where I'm going? So Jonah's going, I can't face that. <laughs> On the surface. Let's look deeper though. Let's look deeper. Why is Jonah angry? Jonah's saying something that I hear all the time from people. What's the point of living? That's what Jonah's saying. What's the point of living? Why is Jonah saying, what's the point of living? Who says, what's the point of living? People who lose what it is that they found meaning in. Are you tracking so far? Jonah's losing the one thing that gave him meaning, identity, significance, worth. The one thing. Now, here's the comical irony. Listen to this. Who is Jonah talking to? Jonah's talking to God. Jonah's talking to God. In other words, Jonah is looking at the only source of meaning in life and going, I got no source of meaning in life. Jonah's looking at the only reason to get up in the morning, God. He's saying, you know what? I got no reason to get up in the morning. By the way, if you've never asked these questions, it's because you're too young or you've had a very charmed and unreflective life. Every single one of us. Is that too harsh? (laughs) Clap if it's not too harsh. Every single one of us will get to that point where you're looking at going, God, I've got no meaning in life. And you're talking to the one who's the only source of meaning in life. God, what's the point of living? It's the only person who could give us life. Why is Jonah doing that? This is fundamental to where we're going this week and next week. Jonah is not like you, unlike you and me. Jonah has two gods in his heart. A true God and a rival God. You see that up on the screen? Jonah has two gods. A true God and a rival God. What is the true God? The God of Israel that he's serving. What is the rival God? The national security of his people, his ethnic pedigree, his morality. Are you tracking so far? The true God and the rival God. Jonah's heart is not like, unlike your mind. Jonah's heart is divided. Jonah's heart, James 1 8, the double minded man who is unstable in all he does. Okay? Jonah's heart is worshiping the one true God, but on the other hand, he is also worshiping this rival God in his heart. This is, by the way, why the Bible says whenever the Bible talks about a pure heart, it's not talking about a sinless heart. It's not talking about, you know, a pure as in like there's nothing going on there. When the Bible talks about a pure heart, it's talking about a single heart. It's what David prayed in Psalm 86, 11. God, give me an undivided heart. Now, here's the thing. Jonah, as long as serving the one true God allowed him to serve the rival God, things were fine. But the day that serving the one true God meant that he could no longer serve the rival God, he churns on the true God. Can anybody relate to this? Like two people? (laughs) Have you ever seen this? A Christian who loves Jesus, goes along, fine. And then all of a sudden, whoa, what happened to them? I don't know. They just dropped off the face of the earth. So I come to church, being involved in the community, accountability they just and they go around saying you know i don't want to be a christian anymore things don't work why on the surface it looks like they're worshiping the true god but underneath there's a rival god anchoring their soul and as long as serving the one true god enabled them to serve the rival god things are fine but god messes with the rival god i'm going to turn on you is this resonating with anybody it should you know why 
Because every single one of us, check this out, every single one of us is like Jonah. The question is not, do you have a rival God? The question is, how bad is it? The question is not, do you have another God in your life? The question is, how ascendant is he? Every single one of us has a true God and a rival God. Do you know what your rival God is? Now, here's the thing, you guys, okay? Here's the thing you got to realize. In the very beginning, all of us come to God for completely selfish reasons. <laughs> Nate, apparently you're the only one that's really resonating with my sermon today. He's cracking himself up. Are you going, hmm? Anybody? We all do. I know you don't think you don't want to be, but all of us come to God for selfish reasons. How many of us came to God because you didn't want to go to hell? No hell for me, people. Anybody? <laughs> no hell for me. <laughs> it's like, man, when I was in high school, I saw this. I'm sorry. This is going to be a random Christian. Like, I saw this movie called Thief in the Night, right? It's about like the apocalypse and like the end of the world, right? It's, it's basically a lamer version of No Left Behind. Is it No Left Behind? Huh? Just Left Behind? No Left Behind. No child. I'm totally... I'm totally, totally okay. I came to the country when I was 10 years old. Leave me alone. Okay, so anyway. Anyway, do you know, how many of you remember? I saw that movie. I'm serious. I couldn't sleep. I went home. I'm like, oh my God. The world is going to like burn and cream. Planes are going to crash and people are going to die. And I just literally said, God, I don't want to go to hell. Boy, that was really unselfish of me. Some of us. Here's why we came to God. And this is very important. Listen, some of us, we came to God because we were lonely. We needed community. And you found a group of Christians who loved you and cared for you, which is okay. But you never converted from that to serving the true God. Hi, college, college students. I hear people who say, you know, I was part of InterVarsity for four years. And then when I graduated, I just dropped my faith. Why? You were never converted. You were converted to the environment. Hello. Oh, I love the environment, you know. You look like a Christian. You act like a Christian. This is the reason why there are a number of people who come up on Sunday when I give invitation. And somebody goes, wait a minute. She was part of my chapter. Yeah, precisely. They're not converted to Jesus. They're converted to the environment. I love the environment. The songs, they get me emotional. There's some of you who come. You think you're a Christian, but you're just encountering an environment. And then third of us, third. Some of us come to Jesus, a lot of us, because there was a need, a deep need. We're desperate, right? And by the way, a lot of times when we have enormous problems with deep needs, the source of it is our rival God. And we come to God and go, God, I'm in desperate need. I need help. My life is falling apart. We go, God, I desperately need you. Will you help me with this? And what we're really saying is, God, as long as you let my rival God be intact, we're good. Here's what happens, though. God, out of his grace. Isn't this amazing? A 15-year-old says, I don't want to go to hell. I need Jesus. He doesn't go. That's selfish of you. Make sure you have unselfish reasons and come back. God still intervenes. God accepts us. And you know what? God does all of it. But all of us, after we encounter Christ, at some point come to face with the real God. And this real God comes to you and he says this. He says, you know, I'm not a pet. You can just call out when you're in need and, and do tricks. You know, I'm not a vending machine that you put in good deeds and go. I'm not, a, I'm not a vending machine that says, God, I'm being a good person, will you? God comes to you and me says, I love you for you. I love you for you. 
do you love me for me? God comes to us and says, I love you for you. I gave my life for you at an infinite cost to myself. I love you for you. When are you going to stop using me like a pet, like a vending machine? Eventually, we encounter the real God, and this real God comes to you and me, and he says, why are you serving that rival God? It is foolish because that rival God will never meet the heart a heart that I created is much more nobler than that. You worship that and you'll find your soul atrophying, hardening, stiffening, and eventually going out. Are you going to love me for me? Will you receive me and serve me for me? Eventually you encounter the real God. And you begin the process of spiritual maturity, which is you love God and serve God for who he is in himself, not what he gives you. Now what he does for you. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. Memorize it. Memorize this quote if you have to. It'll guard you. It'll anchor you. He says, there is but one good and that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns from him. And guys, this process never ends. See, some of you, this is the reason why you're taken, you know, you're taken by surprise. Because you're going along fine, right? Worshiping God. And all of a sudden, whoa. By the way, this is so funny to me. I notice this in people, people I know in our church. I don't know everybody, but some people, like they drop out from church, right? And a lot of it is all of us and they're going well spiritually and boom, they hit something, rival God, their spiritual life goes out, and they just go as far away from God as possible, which is the worst thing and the last thing you should do, by the way. When you are in the pit spiritually is when God might be the nearest to you. But Satan goes, don't you feel guilt? Don't you feel shame? Don't you feel embarrassed? Don't... So those of you that are going along fine and you hit rock bottom and you learn the lesson, don't walk out going, whoo, I learned the le-. No, 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 no. There are deeper levels to go. Deeper levels to go. Say amen if you know this. Deeper levels to go. It's a lifelong journey. It is. It's a lifelong journey. Just when you think you've come to the end of it, that's when you've just begun it. True God, rival God. Every single one of us. The process of growth sanctification is not that the rival God dies. But we die to the rival God daily and moment by moment in our lives. Knowing that it's going to rear its head ugly head. As we keep our eyes focused on the true God. By the way, this is the reason why we're judgmental Christians. We don't see the persistence of our sin. So we don't understand the patient love of God. Can I say that one more? If you don't understand the persistence of your sin... You will never understand the patient love of God that loves you and loves you and loves you. Let's finish. Because of time, I'm not going to read these four. Actually, I need, to, I need to read it. I'm going to read really fast. Verses four to nine, okay? Actually, I'm not going to read it, okay? Because of time. Just, just go ahead and go look at it, okay? Just get a look at it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Because of time. Uh, here's, the, here's the sermon point. God takes away comfort so that we can see what we rely on. God takes away comfort so that we can see life. One caveat, real quick, one caveat. Our church is a church in which there are people, listen, there are people in our church who financially, economically, okay, what you and I consider comforts is a necessity to them. So I have to be very careful when I preach this because there are people out there going, Peter, what you talk about comfort is a necessity to us because they don't have a job or have a hard time keeping a job, so on and so forth. So I want to just say a caveat and say, when I talk about comforts, have sober judgment for you to ask the questions to yourself and going, 
yeah, that's me. Those are comforts, rival gods. And then also sober judgment for the rest of you to go, man, those are necessities in my life, okay? All right? So God takes away comforts. What happens to Jonah? The word provide appears three times in these verses, right? God provides the vine, God provides the warm, and God provides the scorching wind. By the way, the word provide is very closely related to the theological word providence, which means that God controls all the events sovereignly in history. So here's the thing. You got to wrap your brain around this. We're going to come back next time. God provides the shade, which we all go, yeah, I love that. God provides the shade, comfort. God provides the warm. God provides the scorching wind. By the way, please don't take this allegorically and go too far. Go home and tell your wife or something. I realized you're the warm in my life. Okay, don't, don't, don't do that, okay? <laughs> don't do that. Okay. No, they're, they're the butterflies that God has given to you. <laughs> Say, you're the butterfly, honey. Not the one. Okay. Why does God, listen, 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 come back. Why does God do that? Why does God do that? Simple. To show Jonah his self-righteous and his divided heart. The best example in all of the Bible I can see is Job. Job. Do you remember Job? So God says about Job, Job fears me. And fear, literally in Hebrew, is an inward sense of awe and reverence. In other words, God's saying, Job loves me for me. He loves me and serves me for me. Satan comes bouncing along. And Satan says, oh, no, he doesn't. He doesn't love you for you. He loves you for the things you're giving him. He loves you for the things you're giving. He doesn't love you for you. He doesn't serve you for you. He loves the things you're giving him. You know, like health, wealth, prosperity, lots of kids. God, you take away any of those things and you watch. He'll churn on you. Dare you? God says, okay, go for it. And what happens? Satan does. Now, here's the thing. Satan has put a finger on something. Give devil a zoo, something that is common to human beings, okay? I can't tell you the number of times I've had this experience. A seminary student comes to our church, right? And he's all excited and takes me out to lunch and coffee and, you know, says all these things. Your church is a great church in the world, blah, 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 blah. And then he says, um, um, can I do an internship here? And he's like, hmm. I get this feeling like, so all of that was because you wanted. And I tell him, I go, well, we'll see. You know what? If you, if you come back, be a part of our church and, and get committed and committed. You know, we want to have people in our church serve, but you need to be committed next week. Anybody see John? Anybody see John? How many of you guys up higher in your field, right? And somebody down below smooths you, schmoozes you, all that stuff, right? Says, da, 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 you're the greatest sliced bread, right? And then when they find out that you will not open doors for them, well, they're gone. And you realize, what happened? I was just being networked. <laughs> anybody? 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 How do you feel? How do you feel? Women? Women? And I hear this. Women? Women in our church who come to me. They're dating some guy. A guy, six, seven months, you're the greatest, you know. And then, and then, and then, and then, listen, and then it happens, right? And then it happens. She'll walk into my office. She says, we broke up. Tears. Why? Because I wouldn't sleep with him. Pastor Peter, he dated me. And when I told him I didn't want to sleep with him, he said we were done. He didn't love you for you. He loved you for it. What was the it? Now, how do you feel when you network? How do you feel? You you feel depersonalized, right? You feel dehumanized. It's humiliating. Here's the thing. When you then in turn 
and you treat someone else like that? When in turn, you turn around and you don't love someone for them, you use them, you don't just depersonalize them, you dehumanize yourself. Because now you have become an exploiter. You just became a manipulator. You just became cynical and hard. You became evil. You became like Satan. And Satan is laughing. He's having a good old time. Because whenever people, Christians say, I love God for himself, and I love people for themselves. You know what Satan says? He goes, give me a break. You don't love God for himself. You love him for you. You love him. You don't love her for herself. You love her for what you're getting from her. And he laughs. And you know what? If you don't want to be an exploiter, you don't want to be a manipulator, you don't want to be somebody who's becoming evil because you don't love people for who they are, you don't love God for who he is. If you want to be a person of integrity and of compassion, a real human being, you've got to love God for who he is. And you've got to love people for who they are. One quick thing. This is the reason why I preach on the gospel every single week. Our church is full of people who are pouring out their time, energy, resources on behalf of others. Make sure you are not doing that to love yourself. Don't love yourself by loving other people. You're an exploiter. You're a manipulator when you do. And they have no idea. What's going to free us from being a manipulator and exploiter? Someone who loves people, not for what they can give or who they are. It's when you are so freed by the gospel that you say, I'm loved already. I'm accepted already. Period. Done. Now I can freely love others. Amen. So what happens to Job? Real quick. We're done. Almost done. What happens to Job? Well, in the beginning, it looks like Job's winning. You know, Job says, I don't love God for the things. I love God for himself. Even though he has a wife who says, just curse God and die. She's a warm, by the way. Just curse God and die. And Job says, no, I love God. So at the end of the first quarter, football analogy, Job won, Satan zero. But as you read the rest of the book, what happens? Job has friends who are going, man, you're doing that because God this, and you're not obedient. You're not done and I hear the reasons why. And Job starts going, you're right. You're right. You're right. God, I'm angry enough to die. And God comes along and says, let me get this straight. Who's the servant in this relationship and who's the master? Can I get this straight? Uh, who's the Lord and who's the... Well, you're angry. Why? Because I'm no longer meeting your needs. Can I say one real quick thing and then we're done with this part? In the entire book, God never tells Job why. He never finds out why. I have people who come and go, Pastor Peter, scorching wind, warms, difficulties. And if I just knew why, then I'd be able to handle it. Listen very carefully. If I just knew why, why doesn't God? Here's the reason why. Because if God comes along and says to you, five years from now, because of this, you'll become great. Ten years from now, because of this, you'll become a wonderful. Fifteen years from now, if God tells us why he's doing what he's doing, you and I wind up going through it because of the, what we're going to get out of it. That's why he says, I can't tell you why. Is that fair? God's just saying to you and me, 
I don't want you to be an exploit. I don't want you to be a manipulator. I don't want you to be the kind of person who goes around, loves God, loves people for what they can do. But a man of God, a woman of God who loves me for me, serves me for me, worships me for me, gives his life and her life for me, for me. And God doesn't tell us why. Because if he told us why, we would do it for the why and not for the work that God wants to do. Okay. I'm ending with two questions for you. This whole sermon, you're sitting there going, I don't know what my rival God is. I don't know. I I think I do. I don't know. (laughs) I think 90% of us are like, stop talking about my rival God. He's sitting next to me. No, rival God. Rival God. Here's how you know. Two questions. Carlton, you can come on up. How do you respond to unanswered prayer and frustrated hopes? Church, look at that question. How do you respond to unanswered prayer and frustrated hopes? Church, I need you to look at that question. Is there anger? Is there explosive anger? How many angry people am I talking to this morning? I'm serious. How many angry people, you know? And for some of us, it's passive anger. You know what I mean? <laughs> people like me, people know when I'm angry. It's very clear. Others of us, it's resentment. It's bitterness. It's cynicism. And your anger has literally blinded you to people who love you. Your anger has so blinded you that you're walking around going, nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. I knew it. You are so blinded because of the hardness of your heart that you can't even see the people around you. Christian life just doesn't work for me. I think I'm done. Truth about Christian life is (laughs) when you serve God and love God, whether he works for you or not, that's when Christian life will work for you. Second question. What causes you to get most down on yourself? What are you despondent about? What are you angry about? What are you frustrated about? Have you failed at something? Have you not met something that you thought you absolutely needed to? Are there things in your life right now that you thought you could accomplish? You thought you would have by now. You thought you would be able to overcome. And because you haven't, you are completely despondent and distraught. Here's how I want to end this morning. You know, uh, we have communion coming up. And, and boy, as I was preparing this sermon, I literally thought of various people and faces of people, whether they could articulate this or not, saying, these are the rival gods in my life, and it is consuming me. And what we want to do this morning, church, before we enter into communion. By the way, this is part one. So if it feels a little unfinished, you're going, where's the gospel? Where's the gospel? Gospel's coming next week. Here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to do. This is too important. This is too critical for you and I to just kind of either just blow off or take lightly. This journey of wrestling with the true God and arrival God in our lives and learning to love God for who he is in himself. It's a journey that begins in utter brokenness, humility, and repentance. Repentance. Coming to God, acknowledging and saying, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite, actually, you to come up front and join me. I'm going to invite you to come up in front and join me. 
and, and kneel at the foot of the cross here today. I'm going to kneel. Those of you that are saying, you've touched the nerve, like the rival God. This is the reason why, Peter, I praise God one day and I curse God the next. If that's you, and God has put a finger on that rival God, God has put a finger on you serving God, not for himself alone, but for the things. Come up and join me here. And I want us to pray together. And then we're going to take communion as we ask for forgiveness. Okay? Just get up from your seats and come on up. Just get up from your seats and come on up and join me up here. Join me up here. Please, don't, don't you dare take communion. Like, come on. If you're sitting there going, God, my heart is not pure. My heart is not single. My heart is not undivided, God. And this is, come on. Come up to the front. Come up to the front. Please, 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 please. Genuine heart of repentance. Genuine heart of confession. Before we take communion. Before we take communion. Okay? I'm going to wait until everybody that wants has an opportunity to do this, okay? Your journey to healing, your journey to restoration, your journey to maturity, for crying out loud, is learning to deal with this in a godly, godly, biblical way. Is learning to deal with this in a way that results in true transformation. Is there anybody else? I'm going to wait. Come on up. Come on up. Fill the rows. Fill the front. Fill the sides. Come on up. Come on. Our journey through Jonah is almost done. We're going to come back to this way later, this theme. But come on, before we end, come on up, come on up, come on up. What is your rival God? What is the source? What is the source of meaning, significance? What are you looking at? The only source of meaning in life and saying, God, I don't have this anymore. Gone is my source of meaning. Come on up, come on up, come on up, come on up. And for those of you that have come up front, I want us to enter into this time. And for those of you that are sitting out there as well, will you also enter into this time in your own way of confession, of repentance, of acknowledging and recognizing our idols and rival gods and asking God for deliverance, asking God for help, asking God for his healing, for his salvation. And I give you a moment to pray. I'm going to give you a moment to pray. Go ahead. Go ahead. Cry out to him. Cry out to him. Deliver me, oh God. Cry out to him. Salvation is of you, oh God. Cry out to him. Cry out to him. I want to love you for you. Cry out to him. I want to love you for you, God. I want to serve you for you, God. I want to worship you for you, God. I want to give my life, all of it for you, to you, God. I do, I do, I do, I do, I do, oh God. Grant me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Grant me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. At your altar I put at your altar I place at the foot of the cross I place at the foot of the cross I place God my all my heart my all my heart my all my heart my all my heart 
And those of you that are up front, this, by the way, is the first step towards the journey of being concerned about what concerns God's heart, what breaks your heart over what breaks God's heart. It's learning to see the beauty, the majesty, and the glory that is God. And learning to be enraptured and falling absolutely madly in love and being blown away by his majesty. And it's when you see that, your heart begins to break. Your heart begins to be poured out in the life of others. So will you pray that before you go? God, will you take, help me take my eyes off of myself? From my self-absorption, God. From my self-pity, God. From my self-centered living, God. And self-centered life, God. Break my heart for the things that break yours. Burden my heart for the things that burden yours. In a moment, I'm going to ask the communion service to come forward. But before I do, those of you that are kneeling at the foot of the cross, can you minister to each other? Can you go ahead and put your hand on the shoulder or the back of someone who's kneeling beside you? And for those of you that are seated in the congregation, will you do the same? Will you go ahead and pray for the person sitting next to you, to your left and to your right? Pray for them and their hearts and prayers simple and straightforward. God, grant her, grant him an undivided heart that fears your name. That fears your name. Jesus. Oh, oh. Just to be close to you. 
just to be close to you. Is my desire just to be close to you? Just to be close to you? Just to be close is my desire. And the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body broken for you. Take it. Take it in remembrance of me. Remembering my work of living the life you should have lived and dying the death you should have died. And then he took the cup, the cup. That represents his blood, his sacrifice for us, so that in his name we can be welcomed into his throne. We can be welcomed into his family. We can be accepted unconditionally in Christ. Before you pick up the bread and pick up the cup this morning, pick up Christ. Pick up Christ. Sing these songs as a reflection of your prayer. Sing these songs as a reflection of your prayer. And as the communion servers station themselves, Pastor Michael and myself and our prayer team will be near the cross for anybody that especially needs prayer for healing, prayer for restoration, prayer of encouragement, prayer of comfort. Whenever you're ready, come forward. And those of you that are up front, you can go back to your seats. If you feel led, you can stay way up front and pray. But the Lord invites us to the table. Come, church. Come, church. Just to be We all stand together. We all stand together. I'm going to remind all of us the gospel. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of living by the expectations of what your parents are saying? Aren't you tired of living up to the standards of what the culture says? Aren't you tired of living up to what your peers are saying? Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. He is our salvation. He is our hope. He is our joy. He is our life. Salvation, not some future eternity when you die. I'm talking about salvation now. Sense of affirmation, sense of approval, sense of life and meaning now. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of Jesus. Turn to Him. Trust Him.
Turn from your rival gods, false gods, false idols that can never come through for you, will never, ever come through for you. And turn to the living God. I implore you, church. I implore you. I beg of you. Turn and trust Christ. Salvation is of Jesus. Now and forevermore. He is your source of strength. Your source of life. Your source of hope. Your source of meaning. Turn to Jesus. Salvation is of him. He lived the life you should have lived. And so the honor for living that life is given to those who repent and turn. He died the death you should have died and took the curse of death. All your punishment has been taken away. Born by him forever. Turn to Christ. And God, as we leave this place, as we leave this place today, may our souls sing out loud, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. And may our hearts leap for joy. May our hearts leap for joy, God, as we make this declaration that heals, that saves, that restores, and that gives life into our souls. Salvation is of the Lord. Church, if that's good news, you clap and you worship and you praise God. Salvation. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. 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 Have a great week. Safe travels for Thanksgiving. And we'll see you back here next Sunday. May the Lord be with you. May his peace go before you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Take care.